This wouldn't be a proper Golden Girls podcast without a wraparound episode comprised of separate but loosely connected flashbacks. This is that episode. Marcus Allen. Mike Tyson. Extra innings. The tight end decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play. Magic Johnson. Bobby Old. Tampa Bay Bucks. And they're off! The pig takes the lead. The chicken. Today's show was all about jokes and references and mentions and bits that I missed over the last year plus in producing this podcast. And we'll start with an episode that's actually packed with sports stuff. Brotherly Love was written by Jeffrey Farrow and Frederick Weiss and premiered on November 14, 1987, the eighth episode of the Golden Girls' third season. It begins with the Johnny Bench joke we talked about two episodes ago, before we find out that Rose hasn't slept in days. Did you not sleep again last night? No, and it's been three nights in a row. Honey, have you tried drinking warm milk before you go to bed? No, I can't drink warm milk. It reminds me of the time Cousin Enoch fell into the vat of milk at the dairy. (laughs) Goodness, was he hurt? Oh, no. In fact, it began the annual tradition of the St. Olaf milk diving tournament. (laughs) I won three times in the low-fat division. Eventually, they discontinued the event when several spectators were caught dipping their Oreo cookies in the winner's swim trunks. Later, Stan drops by the house, but this time he brings his little brother Ted with him. The divorced doctor first attracts the attention of Blanche, who wastes no time in disrupting the brothers' plans to take in a big game that evening. You know, I've never met a neurosurgeon before. I would love to hear more about your work. How about 8 o'clock tonight? Well, that sounds good, but I think Stan might have something planned for us. Well, I did have ringside seats at the mud wrestling palace, but uh, hey, a bird in a hand is worth two in a bush. Elegantly put, Stan. (laughs) Ted and Blanche's date is a dud. When he drops her off at the house, he runs into Dorothy, and the two ex-in-laws decide to reconnect. The next morning, Ted hasn't returned home, and Stan assumes he spent the evening with Blanche. So, Blanche, ba-ba-ba-boom, huh? What? Last night with Ted, cha-cha-cha, tango-tango, ole-ole. Nobody here speaks Spanish, Stan. Stan, what are you talking about? Oh, oh, I get it. Play dumb. I can play dumb. Play? You could manage the team. But everyone is in for a shock when they learn that Ted and Dorothy spent the evening together. Dorothy begins to think she's falling for him, which of course angers Blanche, who is used to men falling for her. And the two roommates begin a bitter struggle for the affections of a Zbornak. Turns out that Ted is just as shallow as Stan is, and his one-night stand with Dorothy was just an attempt to get her to babysit the kids of the latest girl he's picked up. So Dorothy does what anyone in that situation would, and tells an entire restaurant full of people that Ted is impotent. And she and Blanche reconcile over the lifeless body of a sleeping Rose, who finally beat her insomnia problem thanks to Sophia's Sicilian sleeping potion. Brotherly Love was the first of three Golden Girls episodes written by Frederick Weiss and Jeffrey Farrow. The other two were wraparound episode Three on a Couch, and then Mickey Rooney starring Larceny and Old Lace, which we talked about in season two. 
After the Golden Girls, the pair went on to write a ton of episodes of Mr. Belvedere over six seasons. They also worked on Archie Bunker's Place, Charles in Charge, We Got It Made, and 9 to 5. Ted's Bornack was played by comedic specialist McLean Stevenson, who's best known as Colonel Henry Blake on the TV version of MASH. Born in Bloomington, Illinois, Stevenson served in the Navy and graduated with a degree in theater from Northwestern University. He worked odd jobs, including being a TV clown in Texas for a few years, until a party in New York City with his cousin, two-time presidential nominee Adlai Stevenson, awakened his urge to be a professional actor. Stevenson won a scholarship to the American Music and Dramatic Academy, studied under storied instructors Lee Strasberg and Stanford Meisner, and got parts in summer stock, commercials, and variety shows. He also wrote and performed comedy sets at nightclubs around New York. A guest spot on That Girl led to a supporting role on The Doris Day Show for two seasons, starting in 1969. When MASH premiered in 1972, Stevenson premiered with it as the kindly but scatterbrained Colonel Blake, who wanted the best for his troops, but was always two steps behind pranksters Hawkeye and Trapper. Roger Bowen played the part in Robert Altman's movie version of the 4077th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, but most people only remember McLean Stevenson in the role. After three seasons at the Korean front, Colonel Blake completed his service and flew home, but his plane went down and was lost at sea. Harry Morgan's authoritative Colonel Sherman Potter took over command of the 4077, but Hawkeye, Trapper, and eventually BJ still got away with him. In the real world, Stevenson left MASH in 1976 to star in a sitcom bearing his name. But the McLean Stevenson show only lasted for 12 episodes before being canceled. Years later, Stevenson reflected on his decision to leave MASH and came away with some regret and a brutal self-own. Quote, When I left the show, the mistake was not in leaving. The mistake was that I thought everybody in America loved McLean Stevenson. That was not the case. Everybody loved Henry Blake. So if you go and do the McLean Stevenson show, nobody cares about McLean Stevenson. End quote. He started a number of sitcoms following MASH, all of which are mostly forgotten today. Notorious bomb Hello Larry somehow made it to a second season before mercifully getting the axe, while In the Beginning and Condo didn't even get that far. Stevenson played the put-upon dad in the TV version of Dirty Dancing, a show that, unlike Baby, was easily put into a corner. He was much more successful as an occasional guest star, such as on multiple episodes of Different Strokes and The Love Boat, and as himself on a million episodes of various game shows. Stevenson was an incredibly frequent presence for two decades on shows like Hollywood Squares, Password Plus, Super Password, The $10,000 Pyramid, and multiple iterations of Match Game. I'm sure at some point, he and Betty White crossed paths on at least a couple of these. In February of 1996, McLean Stevenson died of a heart attack he suffered while recovering from bladder surgery. He was 66 years old. His artistic peak may have only lasted three seasons in the early 70s, but few people personify the comfortable familiarity of television better than McLean Stevenson did. The sports jokes in Brotherly Love all seem like random throwaway lines. So let's start with milk diving, which I'm pretty sure isn't an organized competition. You might find someone making a random jump into a vat of the stuff just for the laps, but I don't think there's a Greg Luganus of milk diving or anything. At least I couldn't find one in my research. 
Mud wrestling is an actual competition, and chances are there's some going on at a local gentleman's club near you right now. In America, mud wrestling dates back to the 1930s, when the first professional organization for it was founded in Akron, Ohio. In January of 1938, the first women's match was held in Akron between welterweights Leona Gordon and Mildred Burke. A crowd of 2,500 people, including a photographer from Life magazine, watched as the combatants writhed and grappled for 12 full minutes before a pin was scored. The winner had to have her face toweled off before it was determined to be Miss Burke. The caption for the final picture of that Life photo essay is very 1930s. Quote, In the shower room, referee and contestants flushed the mud out of their hair. Said Newshawks, it was a clean match. End quote. Ladies, for better or worse, have been the stars of the sport in this country ever since. But in South Asia and India, mud wrestling has a rich tradition dating back to the 16th century, if not earlier. Pelwani, or Kushti, is still practiced and watched today, and contains elements of some ancient forms of combat sports passed down through thousands of years. Both involve matches fought in arenas with pits covered in a soft yet stable mix of earth, water, buttermilk, oil, and red ochre. Wrestlers fight in matches of indeterminate length until one's shoulders and hips are pinned simultaneously. The old sport is dying out, but some of its practitioners are winning in other rings too. Indian freestyle wrestler Yogeshwar Dutt came out of the Kushti tradition and won a bronze medal at the 2012 Olympic Games in London to go along with his two golds at the Commonwealth Games. Moving on to the next joke, why do baseball managers wear uniforms while coaches in other sports wear suits, or in the case of Bill Belichick, ratty sleeveless hoodies? Contrary to popular belief, it's not because it's mandatory. According to Major League Baseball's official historian, the original managers were businessmen, balancing books and booking road trips, the guy in the dugout filling out the lineup card, making pitching changes, and arguing with umpires was known at the time as the captain. And in a lot of cases, he was a player too. As time went on, captains stopped being active players, but continued directing the club and wearing uniforms. At some point, the word captain was replaced by manager, and general managers became a separate job. Now, the general manager is the guy who fires the manager. We talked about the Season 7 episode, Mother Load, written by Don Siegel and Jerry Perzigian, back in episode 22 of this podcast. But I missed a couple of references to a popular European sport right at the top. This is the one where Rose has to write up a roast for her co-worker, newsman Jerry Kennedy. But first, he has to stop by the house to fix a court-related mix-up. Now, who called Rose? Jerry Kennedy! Jerry Kennedy, the newscaster? Uh Uh-huh. He's coming over to pick up his daily planner. I took it home from work by mistake. (laughs) Boy, was I embarrassed when I showed up for handball with Walter Cronkite. (laughs) By the way, if you ever run into Walt, don't tell him he looks like Captain Kangaroo. Once Blanche meets Jerry, who was played by Mission Impossible commander Peter Graves, she immediately sets her sights on him. They end up making a date, but he's got very important plans first. Now, Rose, I think I just better grab my day planner and skedaddle. You don't want to skedaddle yet? Don't you want to stay and have a drink before you go? Ah, uh, sorry, I never drink and skedaddle. 
Besides, I have to stay sharp. I've got a handball game with Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> Unfortunately, Blanche later learns that Jerry is a huge wet mama's boy, and a battle of wills breaks out between her and Mama Kennedy, played by veteran character actress Meg Wiley, that everybody ends up losing. Between Handball, Walter Cronkite, and Captain Kangaroo, a person can fill enough time for 10 podcasts. Those are three things with long, long histories that, quite frankly, I am not prepared to explore. So instead, here are some interesting facts about Captain Kangaroo, Handball, and Walter Cronkite. Long Island-born Bob Keeshan starred as Captain Kangaroo for 29 years, from the show's premiere in October 1955 to December of 1984, when his contract with CBS ended. He took the name because of the large pockets on his signature oversized jacket, which were reminiscent of a kangaroo's pouch. Team Handball might date back as far as ancient Rome, where there is evidence of women having played it. The first official rules of the sport were finally laid down in 1906 by Danish gym teacher and two-sport Olympic medalist Holger Nielsen. I swear he's not one of Rose's relatives from St. Olaf. Newsman Walter Cronkite anchored the CBS Evening News for 19 years, from 1962 to 1981. Dubbed the most trusted man in America, he has a journalism school named after him at Arizona State University. And yet, he never earned a college degree dropping out of the University of Texas at Austin to become a part-time reporter for the Houston Post in 1935. And yes, he and Captain Kangaroo did look a lot alike. Boxing was the very first topic we covered on this podcast, and there was a mention of it that I missed in one of the few Golden Girls episodes we haven't talked about yet. One for the Money was the second episode of Season 3, and is credited to a series-high five writers. Kathy Spear, Terry Grossman, Barry Fanaro, Mort Nathan, and Winifred Hervey Stallworth. It's a wraparound episode in which the girls remember all of their botched get-rich-quick schemes, like a catering business that went belly-up when the wedding they booked became an elopement and the time they battled each other in a cutthroat all-night dance marathon. The middle vignette is a flashback to Brooklyn, 1954. Dorothy and Stan want Sophia and Salvador to watch the kids a couple of nights a week so Dorothy can get a job so they can buy a TV. But to Dorothy's shock, Sophia refuses and is steadfast in her conviction. Until Sal, impatient for a quiet TV dinner, begs his wife to come clean. Ma, what is Pop talking about? What should you tell me? All right, all right. It's your 10th anniversary next month. Your father and I decided to buy you a TV set as a gift. Ma, you can't afford that. That's why I'm doing alterations. You think I need a wardrobe this size to go to Mulberry Street and squeeze a zucchini? (laughs) Oh, Ma. (laughs) What's so funny? I lied. I wanted the job so that we could buy Pop a television for his birthday. Then it's settled. You buy us one, we'll buy you one. (laughs) It's a deal. Sure. Then your father can go watch the Friday night fights with your yutz of a husband. You can come over here and watch Person to Person with me. And maybe once a week, the whole family can come over and watch that new show, Make Room for Daddy. Thanks, Ma. Where are you going? Get some air. We got air in the house. I like beer with my air. Young Dorothy was played by Lynn Green, 
who prior to the Golden Girls starred on late 70s sitcom On Our Own alongside Bess Armstrong and Dixie Carter. Green idolized B. Arthur and had played Lucy in Three Penny Opera on stage, a role originated by Arthur. During her audition for the part of Dorothy and Stan's daughter Kate for season two's son-in-law Dearest, Green essentially changed the character from a generic young woman into an actual time-traveling version of B. Arthur. When the producers showed no emotions, Green figured she'd blown the part. Turns out she was very wrong, and got a call a few days later telling her they were going to write a part specifically for her in which she could play a younger Dorothy in a flashback. The producers and writers had been looking for a way to incorporate them into the show so that Estelle Getty could play a younger, less elderly version of Sophia, and this was a way for them to do it. It was during A Piece of Cake, the season three wraparound episode, in which Green first played young Dorothy. And there was one person's approval that she had elevated above all others. Quote, I was told B had watched my performance in A Piece of Cake and that she was pleased. For me, that was as good as it could get. I was just a guest performer and was only about 31 years old and B Arthur had watched me. I was happy. I also think I caught B smiling as she was watching the taping of one of my scenes. End quote. Writer Robert Spina praised Green's performances as young Dorothy, calling her remarkable. Quote, it could have gone the wrong way and become a caricature, but Lynn got it right and did it with respect. As a result, B was absolutely on board, and I know that meant a lot to Lynn. End quote. Green ended up playing young Dorothy in a total of four episodes of The Golden Girls between 1987 and 1991. She once joked, quote, In fact, so much time had passed that they called me and asked if I was still young enough to play Dorothy as a young woman. End quote. She even got to act with her idol and push her around in a wheelchair in season three's Mother's Day, in which Arthur played her own grandmother. Green's recollection of that episode, unfortunately, is centered around Arthur's increasing frustration at the uncooperative wheelchair and her co-stars Estelle Getty and Sid Melton ad-libbing. After acting on TV and on stage, Lynn Green became a writer, penning scripts for shows like California Dreams and Lush Life. She then transitioned into producing and has become incredibly successful, shepherding cable hits like Nip Tuck, Boss, and Masters of Sex. We've talked before about the Golden Girls' various continuity errors, and that clip has another one. It's set in 1954, and Sophia says it's Stan and Dorothy's 10th anniversary. But we know from season three's an illegitimate concern that Dorothy and Stan got married in 1949, meaning that anniversary talk is bunk. A series Bible could have solved these issues, but I don't think the writers or producers ever thought anyone would ever notice these discrepancies. The Golden Girls is from a time before binge-watching, the only shows back then that got regular marathons were The Honeymooners and The Twilight Zone, two classics that didn't have to worry about one date not matching up with another. Boxing was another important staple from TV's early days. Matches were easy to produce and drew male audiences in droves. NBC began broadcasting Friday Night Fights in 1946. For the next decade, it was a guaranteed eyeball getter. In the early 50s, Wednesday night fights on CBS and Friday night fights could draw a 24 share, meaning 24% of all the TVs turned on at that time were tuned in to that night's boxing match. To hear some tell it, television was keeping interest in the sport afloat. 
but maybe it was too much of a good thing. Ratings declined and NBC canceled Friday Night Fights in 1960. ABC picked it up and ran it for four years, but viewers still weren't interested. Boxing was already being plagued by accusations of mob ties and a loss of talent. Before long, promoters started making noise that this new TV fad was killing their ticket sales. I have no idea if an uptick in ticket sales ever happened, but I do know that nothing was going to keep Muhammad Ali off TV, so eventually boxing had to come back to homes across the country, promoters be damned. Person to Person, on the other hand, was an interview show in which legendary newsman Edward R. Morrow chit-chatted with some of the day's biggest newsmakers at their homes. Morrow's idea was to stay away from incendiary topics and just ask mundane personal questions of his subjects, some of which were Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, Frank Sinatra, Humphrey Bogart, Harry Truman, Fidel Castro, and John Steinbeck. Getting a crew, six cameras, wireless mics, and broadcasting live from a different celebrity's house every week was no easy feat in 1953. But Morrow's biggest obstacle was critics, including some studio executives and his own colleagues, who felt that the show was full of petty, aimless banter beneath the skills of the great reporter. Charles Collingwood took over the interviewing duties for the show's final two seasons, which mitigated some of the complaints. But Murrow continued to defend the worthiness of his baby, which finally went off the air in 1958. Turns out, he was kind of right, though. Celebrity interviews haven't gone away, and if anything, person to person was the antecedent to an even greater portion of today's news, where the mundane can take over the news cycle for weeks. At the end of that clip, they make room for Make Room for Daddy, which starred Danny Thomas, father of Golden Girls producer Tony Thomas, who was Lebanese, not a lesbian. They don't get meta too often, but the few Danny Thomas mentions they made were as close to Easter eggs as the Golden Girls ever got. We'll reveal another fun Easter egg and a bunch more Miss Sports jokes in part two of our cleanup effort next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saracini. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward, and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirlsportspodcast.com for show notes and references, and follow us on Twitter at Golden Girls SP. Thanks for listening. <laughs>